Mark 14, 12, if you want to follow along as we continue into our uh, Mark series. Uh, sometimes things line up better than uh, one plans, and this one is probably one of those times. Uh, I'm going to read through the, the first uh, eight to ten verses here uh, that uh, explains at least the beginning of uh, the uh, Lord's Supper that we'll talk about. Uh, verse 12 uh, this is coming again off of his anointing uh, by Mary with uh, uh, the perfume and uh, the idea of, of that being an anointing for his burial, he's saying. So uh, things start to make sense, I think, as we go forward. So verse 12, and on that first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One after another, is it I? He said to them, It is the one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So we talked about this last week. The, these festivals tend to, to kind of meld together. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and eventually First Fruits all kind of come together. And sometimes a little bit hard to know exactly where we are, and that sometimes gives us some timing problems in the Gospels. But um, so you intermix these. Um, but so this meal was being prepared for either the actual Passover meal or preparatory meal uh, the day before Passover. Um, I would love to tell you which one it is. I don't know. That's why I said or. Uh, but uh, but that's not really the point. <laughs> you know, um, it's kind of like trying to figure out what type of wood the cross had. Yeah, it might be nice to know, uh, but it's not really the point. Uh, it's, it, it, how that exactly worked. Um, the the upper room for the meal. Uh, this is an interesting uh, arrangement here. This is very similar to the. The triumphal entry where he says, you know, go get the donkey, and it almost seems like the Jedi Master stuff going, I like this, you know, you know, you don't want that donkey, I want that donkey, and, and, and they, they, it just kind of all falls in, and we talked about then, and I'm talking about now, this could have been pre-planned by Jesus, you know, it could like call ahead seating, you know, but um, I think it probably was, you know, it very, very may be supernatural too, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to know. You know, I always in encourage you guys to kind of think about it, you know, imagine, try to figure it out, you know, uh, whatever makes the most sense to you. Obviously, we know that Jesus could have done it very naturally if he wanted to, and he could have done it very supernaturally if he wanted to. Um, what is interesting uh, about this is we don't see this maybe in our culture, but one of these words kind of grabs us the way this is put. It says, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, you don't think too much about that, but that was not normal in that, that culture. Who usually carried a jar of water? There's a woman. So why would a man be carrying a jar of water? You know? Well, 
there's some conjecture here, and I always like to kind of go on rabbit trails once in a while, but um, this, this, the Essenes, which was a section, uh, a sect of, of Judaism, you, you, you've, you've heard of the Pharisees, who were very uh, uh, law-abiding, uh, trying to follow that to, to honor God. The Sadducees, who uh, were more, uh, I was trying to say something positive, but it's kind of not coming to me right now, because uh, they were sad, you see. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they were a little, always kind of a little snooty, but, but that was that group. They were probably most of the Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, but the Essenes are not mentioned in the, the, in the Bible, but they are alluded to. Uh, some people think John the Baptist was one. Um, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was found in a place near the Dead Sea um, that in Qumran, and that's where the Essenes, we find out, lived. And, and they, they were a sect of Judaism that were separatist and very uh, pietistic, you know, following, and they separated themselves from all of the Jerusalem leadership. Uh, and there, there weren't any women in there in their ranks, but they, they did go out in the city and help people. Uh, and so some people think, well, a man carrying a jar, oh, find the Essene. Okay, we got it. You know, uh, that could be what they're talking about there. I'm not really sure. Uh, uh, I still, I kind of like the Jedi mind trick thing, but uh, that's just because I'm a Star Wars geek. But uh, the, uh, the key here is that Jesus, he places a lot of emphasis on this meal. You know, uh, I suppose if you knew you were going to die, I guess they do, I didn't think about that, it's a little bit morbid, I guess, but what, what happens to somebody who's going to get executed? <laughs> they get a last meal. I wonder if it comes from this. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it's just being nice. Well, but, you know, but if you're going to have your last meal and you know it, it's going to be pretty important. But he's doing more here, and we know we talked about it. with the, He's instituting something more. You know, and, and I think that's, it's not just a last supper with his friends, although it is that, it's something that goes forward because it's, this happens to be, what's the festival again? This is Passover. Yeah, something's going on here. <laughs> you know, you go way back into John 2 and John the Baptist sees Jesus and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what is normally sacrificed, we just read it. That's, a, a lamb is sacrificed. But when we take this, did you all get any lamb? There's no lamb here. Did we mess up? And he didn't really talk about the lamb. You know, we talked about that in one of the Bible studies where there's a lamb there or not. I don't know. We can, you, you know. Uh, but his, his goal is to focus on the, the wine and the bread because that's him. But he's the lamb. He's the substitute lamb, you know. No more do we do the lamb thing, uh, you know, as Christians because this is the meal we focus on Jesus. So the upper room, uh, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it, we've done this before. The Mount of Olives, here's the temple. Uh, this is, here's your little uh, directions. Mount of Olives, we had Bethany last week, so he gets anointed over in here. And then we think the upper room is right here. It, it's a gas. You can go there now. It's, it is kind of cool. And I was over there, boy, it's been over 20 years ago. Um, we had a worship service there, uh, which was kind of neat. Uh, it was kind of neat to know. Uh, we don't know if that's really the upper room, but it was a very uh, wonderful thing to just think about what may have happened in that room. Um, uh, and even if it's not the right room, it, it, it's okay. But uh, but the idea is that he's coming together. Um, we talked about last week that perhaps when he goes to Bethany, that every time he went for the festivals, that he would always go 
to Larry, Larry, yeah, Larry and his other brother, Larry. Uh, that's another, another discussion, right? Uh, Lazarus's house with Mary and Martha. That maybe the dad is is Simon, but but that's probably where he hung out. He probably knew them really well, which makes sense when you get to John 11 and he's just really, really emotional about Lazarus's death, even though he knows he's going to raise him. But it's just the the suffering that he's seeing. It just really hits him really hard. We think maybe, now remember, this is, what's the gospel we're in called? Mark. And the guy's real name, you know, the full name is John Mark. We think, perhaps, uh, again, piecing together parts of Acts and other parts, that this is John Mark's house where the upper room is. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to go to the map for that, but it does sound kind of cool, you know, all the interweaving. And if you remember when Jesus, or Jesus, Peter, is in jail, and they're all praying for him. And then he has the angel come, and he gets out of jail. And then they go, and they knock on the door. That's, that's the same house, we think. They're in the upper room praying, you know, which is, which is kind of cool. You can kind of uh, do, do, do what you want with that. But it, it's neat to see. You do have, what's so cool is we do have archaeological evidence to get us a lot of this stuff. This actually is a map, and you probably can't see it, but it kind of has a bunch of, it's one, two, three, it has a four, five, six, seven, it's a different, it's the whole trial, moving him here and moving him there, and it's just kind of a, he's going around the city all over the place, trying to, uh, and this just helps us give us some idea, but what we get is we get that intermingling, it's kind of back to that koinonia idea. It would make sense that the people in Jerusalem who were praying for Peter to get out of prison would meet in the same upper room that Jesus had his last supper with. That would be, I mean, it would fit, wouldn't it? Yeah, whether it's completely true or not, we don't know. But. And then he, pr- he predicts his death and his uh, betrayal. Um, now, he's predicted his death three times at least already, three recorded, maybe he, he's done it more. And he, he increasingly gives more detail. First of all, he kind of says death, and he says uh, arrest and beaten and death. Um, and now he's talking about a betrayal, and the betrayal is going to come from within. That's, that's a little more intimate, isn't it? Um, Judas is an interesting character, isn't he? And I think Mark's emphasis is on that deeply personal nature of the betrayal. Um, I don't know this for a fact, um, but it, it's conjecture. Um, but again, if you can remember, we talked about this when we started uh, Mark's gospel. Who most likely is the one where the data for Mark's gospel came from? It's Peter. Um, and if you read ahead, which you're always welcome to, um, is his denial is coming up. <laughs> so what Peter does is he juxtaposes Judas's betrayal and his denial. And when you look in Mark, you can't really tell which one's worse. <laughs> in fact, you can make a case that, well, you know, that the Peter one's almost worse because he's closer. Now, what happens after, that's going to be a lot different. You know, what you do with the guilt is, is important, obviously. Um, but this is deeply personal. And I just, I thought of this, and just, this is the, my conjecture. Um, one, of the, one of the professors, uh, the main professor his last name's Holland, uh, uh, Professor Holland, in Biola, which is out in L.A., uh, or Talbot is the one who is the, the, uh, uh, the advisor for this Chosen series. He's a, he's a scholar, evangelical, conservative scholar of the Bible, New Testament. 
and he kind of tells them what he thinks they should put in, what they shouldn't, you know, so they don't go too far. Um, but I just thought of this, and it just, if you've watched it, they go out two by two, and we don't know how they go two by two. It doesn't say. But who, does, who do they put together? And remember who Peter's with? He's with Judas. That's kind of interesting now that I read this. It's like I wonder if, if, if Professor Holland looked at this and like, why don't we put those two together? One of them's going to deny Jesus, and one of them's going to betray Jesus. If I, you know, not that they would ask me, but if they asked, I think I'd put those two together too. It'd be kind of interesting. So do what you want with that. That's extra biblical. But it's so the level of evil and sin at the heart of this betrayal is shown in, in verse, you know, 21. You know, it, woe to the one who from the Son of Man is betrayed. It'd be better if they weren't even born. Now, you look at that phrase and you kind of think, what's going on here? It's almost like you get an emoji that goes like this. And a big question mark. Ding! Well, that's what you get, you know. And, but, but you think of there's a, there's a question here, isn't there? There's a theological question. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray. He just said it. So did Jesus choose to, you know, disobey and, and betray Jesus? That's a very deep theological, almost philosophical question. But before we get into that, that little phrase, better not have been born, this is kind of an idiom, a, a saying. We get this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's going through some really bad times. You know, they threw him into a well, and you can be a prophet if you want. <laughs> Benefits are out of this world, but pay's not good. And you get thrown into stuff, which is not good. Um, but he says, I wish, I, you know, it had been better if I wasn't even born. I'm not being very useful right now. And, and, and then you remember Job in chapter 3 of his, it's like, you know, it'd almost be better if I wasn't born without going through all this stuff. It's, it's just an emotional appeal. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. And, you know, you don't have to be too careful. But what about this question? What we tend to do on these questions is we think it's a dilemma. Either... God's doing all this, and we have no choice, or we're choosing it all, and God's just kind of like, well, I hope they choose right. And I think what the Bible does is he actually, it actually tells us it's both. And it's only possible if we have a creator that can know all, see all, is completely, has unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, and unlimited presence, which I just gave you one of the definitions, and, and three of the characteristics of Yahweh. This only works if you have this type of God. Doesn't work if you have the Mars-Jupiter stuff. That doesn't work. They're just they're just kind of powerful schmucks, right? You know, just just you know, ancient Avengers, pretty much. But that's not who Yahweh is. So it's both. The Bible simultaneously affirms God's sovereignty. The, he, he's king over all. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't know. And nothing, no purpose, ultimate purpose of his that is not going to come to pass. His ordering events will happen, but he, he, it also affirms human responsibility for those events. I know that's a little hard, you know, and I'm not trying to get your head to go, and I don't have that emoji, but maybe they got one. It's, the, it, it's really that hard. Is it possible that God knew that Judas, given a choice to portray Jesus, was going to do it. Could he look down the corridors and see that? Does that cause Judas? No, it caused him at all. 
Uh, this is a, not a bad analogy, but it's a human analogy. You've got to be careful. Um, y'all, you know, and you'll have to tell us if you thought the kid's being it. We thought that might be more koinonia, but it's easy when you don't have the kid on your lap. I realize that. So, yeah, feedback would be good. Be gracious. But, uh, but, 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 you know, when you, if you have kids, or, or have had them, or, or been one, uh, the, there, you might have one kid that you could put cookie jar, their favorite cookies, and then leave for 15 minutes, and tell them not to eat the cookie, and there's about a 98% chance they're going to eat one, right? And you might have a kid that wouldn't do it. But so, you put the cookies there, and you say, don't eat the cookies, and then you leave. But you know they're going to eat the cookies, because you just know them. Now, when they choose to eat the cookie, did you cause them to eat the cookie? It's still their choice. But you knew they were going to eat it. That's just a little pinprick of probably what's going on here. God uses the free choices of people to do his sovereign will. Because it looks like Jesus is does it look like Jesus is saying, Oh, Judas, it's okay. You you didn't have a choice. I'm really I'm really glad you were born. <laughs> he says the exact op- I mean, he, he, Judas is culpable. And so I think that's the thing. We, how do we know? How, did, should Judas have known that maybe it was a bad idea to betray Jesus? It's still his, his, it's still his choice. And you see some of this in Scripture. Um, you, you look in Genesis 50, you know, great, a great uh, account. Of, uh, you have the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you got 11 or 10, I guess. Benjamin wasn't there. But uh, 10 of the the tribe guys sell one of them into slavery. Now, did God know they were going to sell Joseph into slavery? Did he cause it? No. That was their choice. But Joseph, afterwards, you know, the stories are really good stories. They're actually good cartoons. Um, Joseph, King of Dreams. I think we've got that on our shelf. But but, the... he tells them after all that time at the end of the, cha- uh, uh, the, the book of Genesis, you intended to harm me. That was your choice. It was evil. But God intended it for good. He brought me into this position so I could save the lives of many people. Could he have done it a different way? I suppose. But the free choices of those people were used for good. And we see this in the betrayal, I think. Think about it. Judas' betrayal of Jesus was horrible. However, something good did come out of it. God did use it for good. The crucifixion is a good thing. (laughs) Even though a lot of evil people got that to happen. I think that's in our lives. What we do, we want to follow and honor God. We even have bracelets that tell us that. And then let him use our good things. He'll use your evil things, but that's not really the goal. Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this was God's sovereign plan. You crucified. I just love that. (laughs) I mean, it's like, wait, 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 wait. This was God's plan. I didn't do anything. I was just hanging out. No, you, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. So it's not either or. It's not, it's either God's plan or our choice. It's God's plan through our choices. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
And what do we pray? God, help me choose in ways that honor you. Wouldn't it be cool if at the end of time God looked back and said, hey, most of the choices you used were good, that I used for you were good, not, oh, yeah, mess up, used it anyway. You know, let's, let's try to honor God because that's obviously what we're asked to do. So Judas chose to do evil. He's responsible for his actions. Um, but God knew and used his evil choice for his purpose. Does that make sense? You got life groups, you can talk about this more, you know. We're going to talk about this in eternity because this is, this is deep stuff. It's fun stuff. It's getting to know God better and better and better. So that leads us up to what I thought was just ironic given it was a, a I guess what's the chances, uh, like 20% chance we were going to have it, I guess, you know, because it was communion on this time. But Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's kind of a really, really cool way to say this is the Last Supper. <laughs> Hence the name. Uh, that's the so his words illustrate that he is what the feasts of unleavened bread and Passover point to. Um, if you, uh, a couple different ministries uh, that I've supported over the time uh, is Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus. Um, they're both Jewish by lineage, but Christian by faith. But they look at these festivals and they were able to, every one of them, you know, and this is obviously Passover here, Passover is really not too hard uh, to get Jesus out of, right? But even Pentecost, you know, the festival weeks and, you know, and, and, and the other types of ones, that they, they all kind of make sense. The giving of the law, well, Jesus is the law. I mean, he is the one. And so it all makes sense. And he, he, he does that. He proves a point. I mean, you think about, you go back and, you know, you can watch the movie or read the book, but when they put that blood over the doorpost, what, were they, what did they kill to get the blood? Iguana? No. Ostrich? Alpaca? Lamb. Yeah. Now, it just all makes sense, doesn't it? The Passover is just so easy. And, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, it's such an easy word, too. Pass over. You know, wh what did that mean? Well, the angel of death passed over the doors that had that on. They saved them took them out of the snatches of death and gave them life. Well, that's what Jesus does. I mean, it's really not rocket science here, is it? It makes a lot of sense. And that's why there's no lamb talked about, because the lamb's Jesus. So this feast represents a, a separation from worldliness. That they're trying to, you know, the world is out there, and it, it, it obviously worldliness will be death. A separation from sin and false teaching and a new life of holiness and godliness now found in Jesus. Jesus makes a lot of big claims in the Bible, you know. Do you know he thought he was God? I think he was right. Uh, uh, you know, it, that's a big claim. You know, what would you do if somebody did that now? Yeah. <laughs> that's why they invented padded cells, right? I mean, obviously... You know, C.S. Lewis put it well, you know, the liar 
lord or lunatic. <laughs> he's either he's either knows he's not who he says he was, and he's just a charlatan. He's a liar. He thinks he's, you know, God, as the way Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, as one who thinks he's a poached egg, uh, or he's Lord. So you can spit at him as a false prophet, or you can put him away as someone who's crazy, or you can bow your knee before him. He's not left you any other option. <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, this, this nonsense that he's a, he's, a, he's a great prophet, but yet he's wrong about half of his prophecy is just silly. You know, we can't be, you know, a nice guy that kind of had some cool sayings, but not Yahweh, because he said he was both. So why would you follow some of his teachings and not the others? Who's Lord there? <laughs> yeah, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? <laughs> Who is the master? So the wine or the cup in the, in the Old Testament symbolize a covering and protection from death, you know, the Passover, the, the, the blood. And then, but that's, you think about it, they get out of that and they get into the wilderness and, and you get Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy eventually. But the other one is the sealing of the biblical covenant. You see this in Exodus 24. Then Moses took the blood from the basin and splattered it over the people. I think we should reinstitute this. <laughs> this stuff doesn't come out very well, though, I've heard. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. We'd have to use the white grape juice, right? Um, but look at that. Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. But think about this, and then this is my blood. <laughs> kind of a cool, there's a lot of depth here. And then it also the forgiveness of sins. You know, you see this in Leviticus 17. For the life of the body is in the blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with Yahweh. It is the blood given exchange for life that makes purification possible. It all points. It's all pointing to Jesus. Isn't that cool? You know, it's just really neat how the Old Testament gives us a more and deeper flavor of what Jesus has really given us. You know. It's the old adage, I think it was uh, Anselm who said this, that the the New Testament, the New Covenant is in the Old Concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Revealed. You know, and, and they work together. They work together very well. I, I, I know sometimes it's hard for us, but I think uh, there's a lot of different societies and cultures in the history of the world that are fun to learn about. But I do encourage you to learn about ancient Judaism because this is where the Savior came from. I didn't choose that. I'm not even that big of a fan of, of, of flatbread. But that doesn't really matter, right? I, I think that's, it's the idea that God chose this. Do you all remember why he chose Israel? Was it because they were the most numerous? Because they were, they were the strongest? Because they were the better looking? It says this in Deuteronomy, I chose you because I loved you. That doesn't mean he didn't love anybody else, but he chose them because it was grace. That's why he chose you, too, because of grace. And I like the way he puts it, Jesus puts, this is my blood of the covenant. You know, I know, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, but there's different views of what goes on in, when we do this, right? What is it really? You know, it's just, I just, I, I really encourage you not to worry about that. I don't know. 
and, and I know it's, it sounds so flippant to say it, but you all know me, a lot of you do. I don't care. I just don't think it matters. It obviously is, it's all about Jesus, you know. I, you know, Jesus takes the wine and says, this is my blood. I don't think whether or not he was, you know, going like this. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that this is what gives you forgiveness. This is what confirms the covenant. And this is what gives you access to the Father and eternal life through the Spirit. That's what you need to remember. Whether it turns into something or not, it doesn't really matter. What if it turns into something and you don't believe? What if it doesn't turn into something and you don't believe? You know? I don't think that's the focus of this at all. When you read 1 Corinthians 11, I think we missed that. Don't take of the body and blood unworthily. Don't take that out of context. You know, that's the end of chapter 11, which has more in it, and it's chapter 11, which has 10 chapters before that. But it's talking about people coming together and the rich people eating the food before the Lord's Supper and not leaving any for the poor people who are working. You're being mean. You're not acting like Jesus. And then you're going to take this meal as if everything's fine. Don't act like a jerk and then come take it. That's what he's saying. You've got to be humble. Because I'll tell you what, if you're going to come in here on any given communion Sunday and say, I am I worthy? You should say no. You're not. That's not the point. That's why we're called Grace Church, not Worthy Church. You know, you come to the table because it's, it's a table of grace. You know, it always is. It's like, are you worthy? No. Are you invited? Yeah, that's cool. That's the cool part, isn't it? Don't worry about whether you're worthy. You're not. But Jesus is saying the new promise now comes from and goes through Jesus. This is it. This is the new covenant, the new promise that he's doing. And in verse 25, he, he kind of implicitly refers to his and others' resurrection. You know, I won't. I won't eat this until I, I'm leaving, but I ain't, I ain't gone. Not completely, and I'll be back. Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't the first one to say that. I think he got it from here. But, uh, and he wouldn't have used a, I can't remember what, a Eastern European accent. It would have been more of a Palestinian accent. So, uh, and what we see, he, he, he's doing this, this gracious gracious solution for sin sinful humanity he's, he's doing for us. So I want to end with this verse because um, I think it's, it's good and you've got to be a little careful. So what I'm doing here is giving you a couple, we, 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 we usually uh, if you don't have a Bible, a good study Bible we usually uh, recommend two different ones. There's the ESV which is more of a, a word for word translation it's one of the good ones, and it has a lot of study notes, and it's out there. It's kind of white with the kind of red and black lettering. And then there's the New Living Translation, which is a little more uh, easy to read, but it's also a study Bible. We want you in your Bibles. We do think that's one, the best way to get to know Jesus, and, and Yahweh is through his word. He's the one that came up with this stuff. I didn't. Um, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, uh, Jesus I think here in Mark is teaching that the covenants are all fulfilled in him, but this is what it says. So in, in the ESV, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is such a cool verse. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now that makes sense, but it's almost cleaned up a little bit more in the NLT. 
For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. So it's cool to understand what Passover was. It's cool to understand what Pentecost was. It's cool to understand all these different festivals, but remember, they all point to Jesus. All those are, all those are yes in him. Because you, that's where you have the access. That's where you have the promises. And what do we get? We'll kind of end with this. These aren't maybe all the promises, but what I came up with when I was writing the sermon. So, the promise, what, what do we get from him? We get a connection to God, access. You normally don't have that because you're not worthy. But you're seen blameless and you have that access to the Father. That's pretty cool. Protection from evil. The Spirit's now in you. You have access to the Spirit. And evil spirits do not like that Holy Spirit because they get whooped every time. If you try to go at evil by yourself, you will lose no matter how pious you are. But with the Holy Spirit, the one who is in you is much greater than the one who is in the world. Power to live a God-honoring life. We are saved by grace, but we live by grace too, don't we? We try hard. But the good news for you trying harder is that you're in the yoke with Jesus. The forgiveness of sins, God sees you as blameless. You know why you call this the good news? This is really good stuff, isn't it? And if that wasn't enough, you get resurrected to a new body, a new self, a new unfallen self, and eternal life with him. That's why we call it the good news. Let us pray. Father, what a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, text that shows us how much uh, we need to rely on your son, that really everything just flows from him. That if we focus on him, let him take us by the hand, we'll get to know you better. We'll know what you want from us. We'll get to have all these other fun people to be around us, to, to help us understand and to be with us through thick and thin. We'll have our sins forgiven. You make us worthy. And we get to live with you forever. What a wonderful promise. We thank you in Jesus' name.